Welcome to another episode of the Neil World Order Podcast. Coming to you at about 11 o'clock here, Central Time, on a Saturday night. A beautiful night out there in Wisconsin. Um, out here, I guess, in Wisconsin, not out there here. What, I guess, doesn't really matter. Uh, just got in a little while ago. Andrew and I took in a Rockford Rivets uh, baseball game. It's kind of like a... I guess you'd call it like semi-pro because it's just college kids kind of, they play in these leagues, the North Northwoods League, I think is what it's called for the summer. Um, we went because uh, Jose Canseco, uh, Mr. 4040, uh, 1988 American League MVP with the Oakland A's, was uh, throughout the first pitch as well as he was a first base coach, I don't know, I think the first four innings for Rockford. Um, he had done a home run, participated in a home run derby over on the river earlier in the afternoon. Unfortunately, I had to work, so I wasn't able to be there. Uh, Andrew hooked me up with tickets to the game. We had great seats. Uh, I got an autographed picture from Conseco. actually won a autographed Rockford Rivets uh, fitted uh, game cap as well that he signed. I have a framed Conseco jersey down here in the uh, Southern Comfort Zone. was always one of my favorite players when I was a kid. Um, I was a huge fan of the Oakland A's, uh, him, Mark McGuire, all those guys. But uh, Conseco just kind of was larger in life. He's 59 years old. Dude still looks good. Um, you know, he threw a good first pitch. Seemed to be hamming it up with the players by all aspects. We talked to some people in and around. The, the rivets are, it's a, I mean, there might have been, I don't know, 500 people there tonight. It's not, you know, very big. Like I said, all these kids play college ball somewhere else, and they kind of pay their own way to come here. It's a good game. Rivets want, came back and won 4-3 to three over the uh, Lakeshore Chinooks. Uh, we were debating the whole game and never really looked it up on what exactly a Chinook is and where Lakeshore is. We assume somewhere near the water, but it was really cool. Got to hang out with Andrew. Andrew and I are going to sit down and do another podcast. Maybe we'll do another NFL uh, preview. It's been uh, three years since we did the first one, and that was one of my uh, favorite episodes to do. Uh, unfortunately, I don't think Frank Gore is in the NFL anymore, so we won't be able to make Frank Gore jokes. But yeah, so that was a great night I had. Like I said, it was cool to see Jose Canseco. Um, huge fan. I know, uh, you know, a lot of people listening even now are probably like, who's Jose Canseco? He's kind of one of the original juicers back when, you know, the baseball players were ripped huge. I mean, he's a big guy. He's probably 6'4". Um, you know, he's still still a, still an imposing figure. But uh, definitely a bucket list thing I got to check off. And Andrew and I just had a good time hanging out, watching some baseball, you know, and just bullshitting and enjoying the night. Uh, it was nice that we had a cool night. I mean, now that we've kind of gotten through 4th of July and what it seemed like endless heat uh, here in the Midwest. You know, and it's funny. I was talking about this with somebody the other day. It seems like here in the Midwest, and maybe it's everywhere, we're either bitching that it's too hot or it's too cold or it's too dry or all it does is rain. But I, I honestly feel like it's this cycle here that we just go through. You know, too much snow, too much wind, too much... And it's whatever weather we're getting, we're wishing for something else. And when that comes, we don't want it either. And maybe it's the human condition. I I don't know. So earlier this week, um, 
I was putting this episode together, and I talk about this all the time. Sometimes I just, and I'm bored or just uninterested in life. And I guess that's a poor, uninterested in what's going on in the world sometimes, so I'm not paying attention. I'm just kind of living my life and doing whatever, hanging out with Kai and whatever. So when I'm when I get like that, a lot of times what I'll do is I'll, I'll go through headlines online, things that are trending, or I'll browse news sites for random shit to talk about or something I think is neat or scary or like whatever and share with you guys. Well, upon uh, clicking a news link the other day, I was greeted with this amazing headline. I'm not even kidding you. Here's the headline read, bat-wielding kids attack San Francisco moms, nannies, outside school in wealthy neighborhood. Okay, I'm laughing, but first off, I feel it's important to say anyone being insulted with a bat isn't really funny, I mean, until it is. But uh, No Valley, that's N-O-E, which is often referred to as Stroller Alley in San Francisco because the neighborhood is known for all the young families and their children, um, you know, families walking around with cell phones or strollers doing their own things. 11, they had, they reported 11 cell phone thefts in the last week, as well as other robberies. Uh, a majority of these crimes are being committed by minors for the most part, some using weapons like a baseball bat, like the headline states, you know, and it's, they're just preying on these women and nannies and, you know, they're just ape children. Uh, you know, it was, it was always been my kind of word for uncontrolled youth. And the best part of this, here, here's a genius take from the San Francisco Board of Supervisors. His name's Raphael Madelman. He blames the students' actions on their lack of direction from schools during the COVID-19 pan- pandemic. Okay, that was three years ago, almost. And I'm serious that this guy really thinks this is caused by the pandemic. And it's like, come on, dude. I know it's California, but get your head out of your ass. A virus or lack of sitting in a classroom didn't make these kids break bad all of a sudden. Majority of these shitheads were probably headed that way way before the government decided to make up COVID. He then doubled down on his stupidity saying the vulnerable communities were probably impacted the most by this, which is kind of a politically correct way of saying poor people and people of color and so on and so forth need more government babysitters, and without them, they all become bat-wielding criminals, which is honestly the most California take ever. But, you know, San Francisco as a whole has seen all crime rise since 2019, as have most blue areas, and you can look that up on the Department of Justice website, San Francisco has a pro-criminal district attorney who believes in the whole non-prosecution of shoplifters and other petty crime, other petty crimes and property crime. He's anti-cash bail. So even based on the rising crime, that's crime that's been reported. There's a lot more crime because a lot of people don't report these crimes because there's no point. And I look at this thing in California, and to quote something a terrible president once said, he said, elections have consequences. So enjoy yours, bitches. That's what I say. You know, but you have to wonder, 
you know, these elective, is, were these elective officials really trying to say that the lockdowns were a bad idea now? You know, California was locked down longer than any, there's probably still parts of California that are locked down. I mean, I have a hard time believing that some blue state liberal is going to admit the lockdowns were all a sham and that it never should have happened. I mean, I agree the school closings had a tremendous effect on all of our kids. As someone who had a kid uh, go through that for two years or a year and a half or so, whatever, I saw it firsthand, you know, but it didn't make my kid a criminal. You know, things that do that often are, are bad parenting or lack of parenting in general, lack of accountability from, the, you know, and lack of accountability from the system isn't going to help curve this either. Like, I, I just think sometimes the simplest solutions to things are the best. I, I say that a lot. You know, and we continue to see issues like this in these blue defund the police areas who still don't see that there is and will always be a need for law and order. They're Honestly, they're reaping what they're sowing. And while these things happening, they're unfortunate. I mean, it's kind of like, what did you expect? You know, you're living what you voted for or voted against. I mean, depending on how, how you look at it. So I say, I think of the great movie, Pump Up the Volume with Christian Slater. If you haven't seen it, the great movie. I say, so be it, you know, and we'll all have a laugh at your expense. But it, it, it's stunning to me. I mean, people commit crimes, they should be punishment, punished. Actions, consequences, you know, choices dictate outcomes. Like, I think they're just, I feel like they're things I say all the time, and I feel like they're things a lot of the world doesn't understand or just want to pretend aren't true or aren't related or just, I, I don't know. You, there's a lot of stupidity in the world. You know, you don't believe it. Next time you're on an airplane and it lands, watch how many people jump up when you know they're not opening that door for 25 more minutes. But anyways, so sticking with um, genius Democrat things, apparently Sunday, and I think everyone's heard this by now, the Secret Service discovered a white powdery substance at the White House, and it turned out to be cocaine. And of course, no one knows how the drugs got into the bi the building. I mean, except probably Hunter Biden, because it's probably his. The coke was found in what's called a common storage area on the ground floor of the West Wing, you know, where the Oval Office is, and it's an area that is trafficked, pun intended by the president's top aide and support staff, <clears throat> Hunter Biden. Uh, the drugs were found in a Ziploc bag near an entrance where visitors taking tours are directed to leave their phones. You know, and, and the White House has cameras everywhere. Trump has said this. Everyone who's been in it. So they know, just like they knew that sub blew up, like, instantly. Like, they know the answer to this question. But... Um, they're probably going to make it and spin this to make it look like a visitor dropped this when really all we should do is see when the last time Hunter Biden was in the White House or if he's missing a bag of cocaine that he was going to go home and snort off a stripper's ass or off a child or whatever it is the Bidens do when they're not stumbling on stages and speaking incoherently in front of a camera. You know, 
the Secret Service did come out and say that Biden, his wife, and the rest of his loser family were at Camp David over the holiday weekend. But, I mean, they can really tell us anything they want. But we all know this is probably Hunter's stash. Like, could you imagine if this had happened on Trump's watch? This is where there's such a double standard and a duality to kind of how things work in the media and so on and so forth. And it's completely asinine, you know. And I feel like these things just get buried on Biden because, one, the expectation of him is so low because he's basically walking dead and his family is a bunch of criminals and losers, whatever. And, two, the media isn't about to dig into this or pretend to care or act like there's something to see here. And... I'm guessing until the last couple of days, a lot of you probably never even heard of this or probably still haven't. So here you go, helping me inform the people, creating a smart electric. That's what I want to do, even though really elections are sham, we don't really have a democracy and yada, yada. But that's a whole other debate and episode. <sighs> Moving right along. In other news... It's not really news, I guess. It's just things that are coming up. As of right now, the next Bourbon Sessions podcast, Volume 4, I just did a four, like the Four Horsemen, um, is slated for July 23rd. Um, I will keep you posted on that. You know, and I've been thinking about, you know, ways to expand it and bring on different people to drink and tell stories with and share random, random things. You know, and it can be done, we can do it via Zoom, people that are in the area I want to do here. You know, I like the one where Brandon and I just sat down and did it. I honestly felt like that was the smoothest format, and when I go back and listen to them, that was probably the one I liked the best and kind of came out the way I want it. So, you know, anyone that interested, drop me a line. Uh, you know, at one point, I'll, I'd like to have Andrew on here to do it. I'm going to reach out to Nate. Um you know, maybe we can get Luke to do it. You know, my pops is supposed to be here uh, sometime this month. Maybe I can get him to sit down and uh, have some drinks with us and tell some stories. Now that he's a retired man, he can look back on his uh, life and years of work, and I'm sure there's plenty of knowledge he could share with us. And I just think it would be a, a, using bourbon as kind of an interesting way to interview people and kind of go on and uh, evolve, you know, everything we're trying to do. And it just doesn't have to be us sitting there telling you what we're drinking and how it tastes. I think there's an opportunity to do a lot more and just use bourbon to bridge the gaps between, you know, what this person does and this person does and people sharing their story or whatever. Uh, staying on the bourbon thing, I'm actually uh, revisiting... The Evan Williams Bottled and Bond. I know if you listen to Bourbon Sessions Volume 3, Brandon and I went back and drank this neat because the first time I drank it on the rocks, I was not a huge fan. Uh, you know, that was before someone had explained to me how a lot of times the ice can, you know, distort the flavor of the whiskey and take away from what the bourbon truly is. Um, this Evan Williams Bottled and Bond, it's an $18 bottle. You can get this just about everywhere. 100 proof, um, it, it's it's very good, very good neat. I would not recommend this on ice. I know some people swear by drinking on the rocks or whatever. 
Uh, maybe if you have like those cold chips or something that's not actually melting water into it, this at 100 proof, and like I said, being bottled in bond, is a great buy. Um, this was one I'd bought because everyone swears by it. You know, when I was first getting into bourbon and people were listing like their must-haves and the best thing at certain price points, you know, a lot of people said that this $18 bottle of Evan Williams bottled in bond stacked up against, you know, your Buffalo Traces, your, your EH, your Larceny, your single barrel jack your knob creek what you know your whistle pig whatever um which the whistle pig stuff i'm actually not a fan of i think at some point i'm going to revisit that but you know this is an easy sip i wanted something simple tonight something i didn't have to do a lot of talking about this is one where it's just 100 proof bottled and bond whiskey and it just bourbon sorry and it's 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 very good. Like I said, for for a hundred proof, it doesn't have a hard bite to it. Mm. Not a lot of heat, a little cinnamon, but it's it's good stuff. I mean, it's there's probably a little more rye in that, which is why it's a little spicy. But definitely, you're looking for something simple. You're just starting a bourbon collection. You don't want to pay. $200 on the secondary market for a bottle of Blanton's because that's what people will charge you for it. If you're listening, don't pay more than $70, $80 for a bottle of Blanton's. Don't pay more than $50 for a bottle of Eagle Rare, maybe $60. Um, EH, Special Reserve, stay around $50, $60. $60 if you really have to have it, but nobody should really be selling it for more than $50. Your Buffalo Trace, depending on where you live, is going to be anywhere from $25 to $40. I was lucky enough to get them down in uh, Kentucky for 27. I have four beautiful bottles over there on my shelf. It makes me very happy. But this uh, Evan Williams, having revisited this, this is something definitely when it's gone, I will be replacing on my shelf. There's been things, um, you know, I don't feel that way about. I'm trying to think what I opened the... Uh, what is off hours single barrel was one of the store buys I had to buy to get my Eagle Rare in Tennessee, and I, it, it was okay. I mean, I, once it's gone, I'll never buy another bottle again. But uh, I actually picked up a bottle at Total Wine today. <clears throat> it's over in the bar. I can't remember what it's called. It's some kind of horse theme. It's Kentucky, a uh, Kentucky uh, bourbon, obviously very good stuff. Uh, I liked it. Simple $35 bottle, you know, and there's a lot of that out there. You know, if you try things and like I said, you like what you like. I like what I like just because, you know, like I said, E.H. Taylor's small batch is my favorite, period. I love that. That's my jam. You know, I love the Buffalo Trace. Uh, I love, you know, I... I I'm really starting to love the weeded bourbons. I love the Green River weeded, the Woodford Reserve weeded, the Weller Special Reserve. But, um, you know, if I had to pick one, somebody's like, okay, you only have one, it's probably going to be the E.H. Taylor because it's, you know, the E.H. Taylor small batch. But anyways, so, yeah, you know, Evan Williams, uh, Bourbon Sessions Volume 4, uh, hopefully a lot more bourbon sessions coming and uh, – <clears throat> Like I said, doing new and different things with that, you know, it doesn't always have to be a panel. It may just be me and one or two guests, me and Brandon again, you know, whatever. I think we're going to leave that door open to kind of just letting these things kind of happen organically.
So, I don't know if it was last week or the week before, because everything I say kind of runs together in my mind. I was talking about all the cool things to watch and movies and stuff like that. Well, last week we started watching uh, The Bear. It's on FX. We watch it through Hulu. It stars uh, Jeremy Allen White. He played Lip on Shameless, which was a great character. He was great in Shameless. And The Bear, it follows a family coping with the suicide of their eldest brother, and he leaves Carmi, who is Jeremy Allen White's character, the family restaurant. It's kind of like a, a... you know, a, a beef place in Chicago. Chicago's really famous for their Italian beef. For those of you outside the Midwest, like Italian beef is like currency and gospel in Chicago. And anyways, the restaurant, he's trying to bring this restaurant back as it's fallen into rough shape. He has gone to like culinary schools and worked at some of the best restaurants in the country. And it's kind of like, you know, like I said, like Shameless, it's set in Chicago. It's it's really great. There's a great ensemble cast. Uh, I'm pretty sure the show won some awards. It was either at the Emmys or Golden Globes as well. I'd heard about it months and months ago. Uh, it's actually waiting on the release of the third season. I think we have one more episode left in the second season. <clears throat> and then we're all caught up. It, you know, it's one of those shows, it's like a dramedy it's a mixture of comic and serious things as well. And and I've really enjoyed it. Um, you know, one of the episodes in particular in the second season, there's like this flashback episode. <clears throat> and the episode revolves around the uh, family's last Christmas dinner as a whole family. And, and to be honest, and I, and I don't say this lightly, it is some of the best writing, directing, and acting I've seen in the show maybe ever. The episode is it's amazing. You know, it would it's one of those where I would love to have sat with the creative team behind it, you know, and and just talk to them and and be like, you know, was this everything you wanted to it to be because it seems like one of those things where what you were trying to do you accomplished. And once, you know, if you ever watch the show and this episode, you will get it. They give you a front row seat into the stress and anxiety of huge family gatherings that are filled with drama and, and trauma from the past. And and it's unreal. It triggered my anxiety watching the episode. There were plenty of times, so many times where I was uncomfortable, which it's clearly what they intended. It's, it's what they were going for with the writing, the act, the dialogue. And in so many ways, it was truly such a great episode. It's something worth seeing. It's not an episode I'd ever go back and watch again, like I said, because it's just, it's 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 very powerful. It, it, you know, if you come from big, it's, I think it's something we can all relate to, I guess, regardless of the size of our families or what our families past or present, maybe issues or, you know, there's always those things that come up or always those people. And, and it, it is truly a phenomenal piece of cinema. And it sounds so pretentious to say that. But the the flashback Christmas episode, and I think it's like episode six of season two, is unreal. A lot of great cameos in the episode. And I don't want to spoil it. But, you know, it's one of those things. FX has always done very well with shows. Um, you know, going back to, I think when it kind of first popped on the block, 
which I, I want to say it was like 2004-ish. Uh, I remember when Chloe was born. Uh, one of my all-time favorite shows, Rescue Me, uh, firefighter drama, another dramedy, Dennis Leary. Check it out if you haven't watched it. I've talked about Justified, and it's coming back. Uh, you know, these are a list of shows on FX. It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia, The Shield, Sons of Anarchy, Nip Tuck, American Horror Story, Fargo, The Americans, Damages. Uh, there's so many more. Uh, you know, they've just been putting out great television for years. There's been very few things on that network. The I would say the only thing I never really finished was American Horror Story. I thought the first season was great. Um, I'm not a big horror person in general. I think the first season had more of a Hitchcock feel to it. After that, it kind of got weird. And I'm not that doesn't mean it wasn't good. It just wasn't for me. And it was like a different thing each season, different cast. You know, a lot of the same people in different roles. But it just like, you know, it, it's not like your typical show where each season is just telling the story of people. This was something completely different every episode. And it's very successful and people like it. It just wasn't my cup of tea. You know, <clears throat> and I feel in the past few years as well, there's been not a lot on current TV that, that's really kept my interest, you know. I was thinking about that as far as, like, things that are currently on or, you know, on the, the big three or four networks. I was enjoying Big Sky on ABC. Uh, that was canceled. I liked SWAT on CBS. I believe that's done. Uh, SWAT was kind of mindless, but it was just kind of cool. You know, there aren't many sitcoms I enjoy. And honestly, I, I can't... Going back to Friends or Seinfeld, like there haven't been sitcoms that I kind of watched. Really, you know, when I think sitcoms, I think Friends, Seinfeld, The Drew Carey Show, um, you know... Two and a Half Men before Charlie Sheen left. I know a lot of people love Modern Family. I think the film look of that was partly why I never could get into that. Uh, there's been other sitcoms I've watched here and there, you know, and they never seem to take. I think they're funny, and then they're gone after a few episodes, or it just gets worse. You know, and then it's one of those things where maybe I just watch too much fucking TV. I love TV. I always have. Um, I think that's where I get a lot of my useless trivia knowledge from, years of odd television programs and shows, reading the occasional magazine or newspaper article. I don't know if you can find a newspaper anymore. You know, I, speaking of, like, trivia and stuff, I don't know if I've ever talked about this, and maybe I have because I've done so many of these. Me and my friends, we always crushed it at those, like, trivia nights that bars do, you know, where it's like, you know, whether it was the write-in one or use the little electronic thing. We were always so good at it. People always thought we were cheating. And, like, trouble always came from it where somebody would, like, you know, be awful towards us, want to start a fight, you know, go all ape shit. And it's just got to the point. I haven't done one of those in years for that very reason because it's just, like, things I thought that everybody knew but I just could spit out faster, uh, you know, and were common knowledge. My wife hates that phrase. But, um, you know, so we talked about doing one a while back. Uh, one of the places around here locally does it. And I was like, oh, I don't know. People just always get mad. Or what if I go in and I suck now? I'm so used to being the best at it. Just kidding. But whatever. So, in conclusion, I'm great now. Well, I mean, I am. But So, 
music-wise, you know, they were to that portion of the show. Before there was Nickelback, there was Limp Biscuit. Limp Biscuit emerged in that rap rock era in the 90s when almost anything could get played on the radio. Um, you know, Limp Biscuit was led by one of the biggest dorks in the music industry, Fred Durst. He's just a tool. I mean, his la- Durst, his last name pretty much says it all. Limp Biscuit hailed from Jacksonville, Florida. I think they were formed in like 1992, 1994. They, they would sell 40 million records uh, worldwide. That's quite an accomplishment. They were given uh, exposure early on as an open act for Korn, uh, you know, and with the combination of Fred Durst, angry, gravelly vo- vocals, rapping, and guitarist Wes Borland's costumes, antics, his experimental playing, the band quickly garnered a huge following. They had their first release, $3 Bill, y'all. Uh, it had huge mainstream success. They made MTV regularly with their cover and the video for George Michael's Faith. Um, their second release, Significant Other, was huge and kind of like shot them to the moon, featuring the hits Nookie, In Together Now, Rearranged, and of course, Break Stuff. Their third release, with probably the coolest name of any of their albums, Chocolate Starfish and the Hot Dog Flavored Water, boasted the hits Take a Look Around, My Generation, Rolling, and this week's episode title, My Way. You know, when I think a lot of people look back on Limp Biscuit, depending on, I guess, how old you are, they're really thought of for one of the most infamous live performances of all time. Uh, Limp Biscuit was scheduled to play at Woodstock 99. Uh, this Woodstock is a huge difference and just a 180 from what Woodstock 94 was and obviously the original. It was ruled by mayhem, sexual assaults, fires, just tons of mayhem, bad promoters, uh, terrible facilities. A lot of corners were cut, and it just, between the weather and lack of facilities, water, food, and just maybe the tone of the the mindset of the youth at the time. Anyways, uh, Limp Biscuit takes the stage as things are really just starting to get out of control with the crowd. You know, and instead of maybe trying to quell the crowd and reading the room, uh, Durst and Limp Biscuit decided to open their set with break stuff. And this amplified the insanity on the grounds. Crowds began tearing down sound fixtures, lighting rigs, destroying tents, pretty much destroying everything as Limp Biscuit played and at times even seemed to incite the crowd. Uh, the band would catch a ton of flack for this. I don't believe they were ever cited or charged with anything. It was just kind of like a black flag on them for being part of anything uh, after Woodstock 99. It was a massive fail, and, you know, it's remembered for the chaos, the assaults, and, you know, most notably Limp Biscuit playing break stuff and shit just hitting the fan. <clears throat> the band would take a break for a while, and they're apparently back to making music and even touring. I guess maybe they're a nostalgia act now. You know, and it's funny, is this week I actually went and forced myself to listen to some of the old Limp Biscuit, And um, while in the halls of just music in general, it's, it's pretty awful. It's also catchy, and, and it had its time back in the day. 
you know, they, they're never going to be thought of as game changers or, you know, a band that inspired generations of new musicians. Although Linkin Park has always, have always credited Limp Bizkit for inspiring them to make music. So I guess we owe Fred and the boys for that because I think Linkin Park uh, are amazing. They have a great catalog of music. Um, I'll be honest, when I think of Limp Bizkit, I think of The Undertaker in WWE during his American badass phase when he was doing the whole biker thing and would ride his Harley to the ring using the rolling, rolling, rolling as his theme song, and it would blend into Kid Rock's American Badass, which is kind of an interesting mesh of Limp Bizkit and Kid Rock. But um, So, yeah, there it is, kids. A quick refresher of Limp Bizkit and the mark they may have or may not have left on music. So uh, check them out. Uh, Maybe not with people around or don't. You know, um, if you have teenage kids, maybe play it for them and uh, see if they start walking around in uh, Jinko shorts and red ball caps and such. Ah, the Evan Williams. So... I was thinking this week, and um, I was like, wow, you know, we are approaching three years, you know, almost finishing three years of me doing this podcast, which is crazy, uh, considering I didn't think it would last six months, uh, if I'm being honest. One, I get bored with things. Two, I was just like, early on, I realized, wow, this is a lot of work, and if I'm not good at this, and I don't know that I am, you know, what's the point if no one listens, and whatever's in my head, maybe it'll all get out at some point and I'll have like talker's block, you know, like writer's block or whatever. You know, but all this time and 100 plus episodes later, here we are. And I'll be honest, I'll admit there's times when I've thought about being done with this, but uh, honestly, for the most part, I enjoy this. You know, I, I told myself when once it, it, it's like anything, when it's not fun anymore and you don't enjoy it, then don't do it, you know. And I think I've been better about not forcing episodes. I'm sure there's still episodes that are complete fucking turds. But uh, I don't just do an episode because I think I'm supposed to anymore. You know, where I think that if you look at this, I guess, season three, year three, is there's probably less episodes than there were the previous two years because I've been smart enough to be like, you know what? you don't have anything to say you don't have anything to say you know I don't want to just talk to hear myself and I think I'm always looking for ways to evolve and I know I've talked about this before and nothing's ever come of it I just think a lot of times life is busy and hasn't given me the doing an episode in general there's only so much time I can put put into it I mean obviously work I have a life I have family um and what I wanted to evolve into. And I, I think I really realized doing the bourbon sessions that having guests is honestly the most productive and the most organic way at times to provide good content because it just happens. It's not forced. It's not me on a script, you know, reading off the 20-inch teleprompter that's right here to my left, which honestly it serves as an outline. I don't read this verbatim, so I'm not a robot. But... I've thought, you know, I've thought about what if the podcast just becomes the bourbon sessions, like I was talking about earlier, where it's just using bourbon as a way to talk about things and engage with people and so on and so forth. But then there's the part of me that does like keeping the two podcasts separate and the bourbon session kind of being its 
own chill, relaxing thing that just kind of happens. Um, honestly, aside from sometimes the notes on the liquor, you know, on the bourbon we're talking about, there, there's not a lot of script work or outlines in the bourbon sessions. You know, we kind of talk, talk, I don't know, 15, 20, 30 minutes beforehand and say, hey, you know, let's talk about you, talk about this, I'll talk about this. And then it just kind of, it just kind of happens, you know, somebody gets on a story and then we're like, oh yeah, it reminds me of this. And, you know, it happens and it's really, I, I like that. You know, I think I saw that with the episode, uh, the Bourbon Sessions Volume 2 really well and Volume 3, Brandon and I did it well. You know, the first one you're always learning and it, it's, the Bourbon Sessions is still in the infant stages. And like I said, I'd like to expand that, you know, and it not, it be whoever, you know, and... You know, I guess you guys, so what I'm saying, I guess you guys are stuck with me and whatever I decide to do differently or <laughs> not to do differently is kind of where I'm at. But, uh, you know, as always, it's it's a treat being able to do this. It's it's silly. It's still flattering that people listen to it and uh, interact and all that. It's, it's, it's really neat. It's something, you know... I never thought I'd have. I've always joked that I always wanted to be in radio. I definitely have the face for it. And, you know, this has kind of given me that on a, I guess, a global scale. If you look at it for some reason, I'm still really popular in Germany, but so is Hasselhoff. But anyways, that's all I got tonight, folks. Um, I'm going to finish my glass of Evan Williams here and then turn in. I hope everyone has had a lovely week, has a safe weekend, and... Um, you know, don't, don't listen to too much Lump Biscuit and start breaking stuff or dressing weird. And then next thing you know, your wife's going to leave you and you're going to blame me. But uh, have a great night. Thanks, everyone.